0: For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code CORP, C-O-R-P, at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code C-O-R-P for 15% off today.
1: Living Corporate is brought to you by Canaries. Let me tell you about Canaries. Canaries. Canaries is a tech company formed in 2018 by black founders who experienced inequities in the corporate world, like most of us in the workplace. They saw typical diversity initiatives, but knew that to create systemic change, diversity, equity and inclusion needed to be done differently. They're still ahead of the curve, focusing on the E and the I using a data driven approach. Think Canary in the coal mine. The name is a nod to the canaries coal miners used to bring into mines to determine if the work environment was safe or undesirable. That's what they do for companies. They help you find the folks you need to listen to. The canaries who will help you diagnose, measure, and attack your DEI challenges. Canaries has your back. Check them out at www.canaries.com backslash employer. That's www.canaries.com. K-A-N-A-R-Y-S dot backslash employer. Living Corporate is brought to you by Black Men in Tech. Black Men in Tech's mission is to elevate the voice of Black men in the technology space by offering year-round engagement opportunities and philanthropic contributions for people in the Black community, the neighborhood. In the tech industry, Black men regularly struggle to access networking and career advancement opportunities, at Black Men in Tech 2021, they are partnering with their allies to create a safer space where Black men can share their experiences authentically. Through this effort, Black Men in Tech hopes to share knowledge that can be used by Black attendees to overcome race-based obstacles, while also offering non-Black allies the chance to learn how they can be more supportive of their melanated colleagues. To learn more about the Black Men in Tech conference that will be happening on June 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, check them out at Black Men in Tech dot com. That's B-L-K-M-E-N-I-N-T-E-C-H dot com. Black Men in Tech. What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. And you know what? Appreciate y'all. Thankful for y'all. Thankful for Living Corporate. I got some news. Got some news. Um, A couple things. First thing, you should see a post on Living Corporate's website today. Release went out. Um, We're actually going to be kicking off a campaign to spotlight some of Pfizer's black executive leaders, to spotlight the work that they're doing internally to create a more equitable and inclusive place to work at Pfizer. We're also going to be talking about the work they've been doing with this vaccine. I'm really encouraging everybody to get vaccinated. All right. Get vaccinated. Uh, More than half a million Americans have passed away related to this virus. So don't think that you're beyond getting sick. Right. I know it's easy to not think about dying or to think dying is ridiculous because you've never died before, right? None of us listening to this have ever died before, but it's a real thing. Um, I need you to take it serious. I'm not judging you or attacking you if you don't get vaccinated. I'm just encouraging you to get vaccinated. And I'm excited about this campaign that we're doing. It's gonna be six weeks. We're gonna spotlight three different leaders, read more about the campaign on our website, living-corporate.com. Um, So, yeah, that's announcement number one. Really excited about that. That kicks off next week. So next Tuesday, you will hear and you will see a lot of content and media around, um, you know, the guests that we have and the leaders and the discussions that we're having. So that's the first thing. Second thing, yo, Living Corporate has gone through a whole rebrand. So hopefully you like the new look and the vibe and the feel. We started Living Corporate three years ago. Really thinking this would be like a singular podcast, but I always had dreams of it being more. And as you've seen over the last year or so, it's grown into more, right? We have multiple podcasts, we have web shows, we have white papers and different brand partnerships that we're doing. We have all types of things that we got going on. We have more coming, right? We have partnerships with LinkedIn, shout out LinkedIn Learning. We have all kinds of stuff popping, right? And so the intention of this rebrand is just to take a look around As we look and we survey what we have going on to make sure that our brand reflects the scale and the complexity of what we're doing. And so thankful uh, for the team. Shout out to David Dawkins. Beautiful work as always. Let's see here. Oh, yo, new merch, new merch alert. So part of that rebrand is merch. I am really excited about the fact that, like, we're leaning further into what. I would categorize as a desire for collective liberation while at work. Everyone does not have to be a revolutionary um, and some type of like freedom fighter in these crazy large scales, but you can be a revolutionary if you seek to pursue living your fullest life and being your fullest self at the workplace. You seeking that and seeking your joy in that is revolutionary. And so you're going to see content in our merch that reflects that ethos. And I'm excited about uh, folks checking that out make sure you give it a look very proud of the design work from our team i mean we have more merch coming actually from the break room we have a lot of stuff coming i'm just very excited so this is like you kind of like wait, wait, we're mid-year right it's june 1st right so we're at the middle of the year this is kind of like my state of the pod address a little bit letting you know what's coming and i want to be clear like we're rebranding And we're shifting not only because of what we have done, but what we're continuing to do and what's coming down the pipeline. So I'm so excited and just, again, thankful for the team. Today's podcast, yo, really, really privileged to have Shannon Kelly Ray, ex-Amazon global DEI leader, community uh, leader, grassroots organizer. And um, we talk about these systems around dei what liberation looks like honoring your ancestors and paying homage to your legacy and really uh, being honest and authentic to where you came from you know i I think it's important y'all that like we don't forget that like where we came from honor your legacy y'all like honor the people that came before you who built and created the foundations that you stand on it's easy to get caught up in these very linear states and points of view. You're just looking out for your little tribe, or you're just looking out for you you and yourself. But the truth of the matter is we are carrying with us centuries of struggle, centuries of joy, centuries of pain, centuries of dreams, right? Some that went fulfilled, some that did not. And we owe it, truly, we owe it to the legacies that have been brought to us to continue those things forward. And you know I just pray and I hope that, you know, if you're listening to this, that you consider who it is you're honoring, you consider the legacies that you're carrying, you do the research and understand what legacy you come from. That's important. It's really important. Um, So anyway, with all that being said, bunch of news, got stuff going on. We have more to talk about. But before we do that, and before we get into Channing, we're going to tap in with Tristan. See you in a second.
2: what's going on living corporate it's tristan and i want to thank you for tapping back in with me as i provide some tips and advice for professionals today let's discuss a few communication mistakes to avoid during interviews interviews are all about communication and the way you do it can make or break your chances of landing the job if you can't confidently convey your talent accomplishments and the value you bring to the organization it won't matter if you happen to be the most qualified candidate So let's talk about the five communication mistakes you want to try to avoid during interviews. First is your body language showing you're not interested or stressed. Though we don't readily think about it, our body language conveys messages that can make you seem disinterested or unlikable. Avoid things like slouching, fidgeting, crossing your arms, looking up at the clock, or at your phone. Next is being too rehearsed. There is such a thing as being too prepared for an interview. You start to come off as a robot, cold and unlikable. Instead of practicing your answers word for word, write down a few short bullets on things you don't want to forget so you can try to stay in the moment. The third mistake is rambling. Longer is not better when answering interview questions. In fact, it can make your answer less memorable. Try only to share the most important information, making it easier for the hiring manager to remember what you said. The fourth mistake is complaining. You want to stay away from complaining in an interview, no matter how bad your last work situation was. You want to stay away from being negative in an interview in any way, as the interviewer can latch onto that and associate negative thoughts or feelings with you. Instead, work on reframing the experience and speak about it as a learning experience. The last mistake is lying. It's one thing to make something sound good. It's another thing to act like you have a skill or are more experienced than you are. While it may not come back to bite you immediately, believe me, you will have some late nights on YouTube University learning how to do something, or you may end up losing your job. Excellent communication is the key to a successful interview. If you can avoid these mistakes, you're well on your way to landing your next role. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. At Living Corporate, we
1: often talk about how we as black folks show up at work and how these corporate power structures impact how we show up. But we know when work ends, we come home, log off and have to show up at home for our families and communities. And as a black man, I often turn to Let's Talk Bruh for the real, honest and healing conversations on black masculinity, mental health and patriarchy. Let's Talk Bruh or LTB is a platform that creates content around black masculinity and the impact of patriarchy in black communities. In other words, Let's Talk Bra is having real conversations that black men need to hear and be a part of. Let's Talk Bra creates interactive, healing, and learning experiences with black men and male socialized folks of all sexual orientations and gender identities. Through their content and community-based programs, Let's Talk Bruh seeks to reduce patriarchal violence in our community and provide support to those most impacted by patriarchal violence, specifically black women, girls, femmes, queer, trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people. Tap in at Let's Talk Bruh dot com. To be clear, that's Let's Talk B-R-U-H dot com. So brothers, what are you waiting for? Let's Talk Bruh. Shannon, how are you doing?
3: I am doing very well. Thank you so much for having me join you.
1: Look, it's an honor to have you. Um, You know, your background is uh, varied and diverse. I want to get right into it. I just want to understand, you know, what led you to D&I work?
3: I uh, started my career as a middle school and high school teacher in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is one of the more segregated cities in, in the country. The uh, U.S. Census considers it to be hyper segregated, so it's not just segregated; it's segregated 2.0. And I was working in uh, the public school system, and you know, really worked with kids who did not imagine, even as seniors in high school, you know, at the start of their lives, getting ready to graduate and jump out into the world. I asked what I thought you know most adults would ask: What are you going to do? Where are you going to go to school? What's next? And a lot of my kids would say that they were gonna work at a nursing home with, their, with a mom or a grandparent. They were gonna work at a Dollar Tree or just these very menial blue collar jobs. And at the start of their lives, they didn't dream of something bigger. And I've met kids who had never left the state, never left the country, never left the county. Some of them had never left the city. Mm. And it's hard to imagine that you can dream something bigger If you don't even know that there is a whole world out there that you can access. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to do more to open up the world to kids, to be able to dream of what was possible for themselves and systems, especially systems that are segregated, systems that are designed for, for disparities and for disparate impact, kids can never fully grasp what's possible for them or their families. If it's not just that they can't dream, but the systems that they have to, operate within actively work against their success. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to get out of the classroom and be involved with organizations that would help change systems so that kids could fully realize everything possible for themselves. So that really led me to the work. It was, you know, leaving the classroom and working for, for small nonprofits, working at administrative offices within school districts, working in safety net programs or any programs in the community that would help better position kids. And then I did it long enough that then I was invited to come into organizations and then assume roles like diversity manager. I remember the first opportunity I got someone approached me and, and asked me to be a diversity manager. And the first thing I said was, well, what is that? Sure. Okay, I'll do it. What is that? And they said, all of the community organizing you're doing all over Seattle, we want you to to come and do that work for us. And so I just thought that it was an extension of community organizing. Then all of a sudden it was, you know, this statewide diversity manager role for a social service organization. And then it turned into this national role for an organization uh, advocating for kids. And then it turned into this state level thing, working for a governor uh, as his subject matter expert in diversity and equity policy. So then it just kind of grew. But at the at the end of the day, when people ask, you know, what is it that you do? How did you start this journey? It was really just to sit down with anybody willing to talk to me, to help change systems so that kids and their families, people in the community, could fully appreciate and enjoy what was possible for their lives.
1: You know, it's interesting you talk about community organizing. We're going to get further down this interview because I want to, but but I'm really curious about as we think about DEI diverse, Mm -hmm. equity, inclusion, and we think about it as like an industry. Mm -hmm. What's your perspective on the current state of DEI? And then like, where do you see the future of this space going?
3: This last year, um, has led to what is, what really for the industry has been as for the discipline has been an explosion. Um, When George Floyd was murdered by the police, every organization, especially corporate America, decided that they had to jump on the track and they were in the race to get to Wokeville. (laughs) Everybody was in a mad dash to Wokeville.
1: The race to Wokeville?
3: The race to Wokeville. Whether they had the shoes on or not, they didn't care. They were jumping on the track and they were running to the front of the line to to get to Wokeville. Right. And you know, it's complicated things in that, you know, I always say that there are two kinds of people that do this work. There are the people who have a passion. They don't have any experience in the discipline, but they have a passion and a love for social justice and inclusion and belonging for for all people. And it's great to engage with people who have a passion, but when you have to sit at the table of leadership to talk about policies, process, and protocol, when you have to talk about systems and organizational de- design and the history of how that informs decision-making and the nuance of this work, mm-hmm. it takes more than a passion to do it. Yeah, And that leads you to that other body of people, the people who are the professionals in that space who have done this work Because you've learned it in classrooms, but not just that you've learned it in a classroom somewhere on a campus somewhere, but that you've done this work for a long time and you know how it works. You know, what's around the corner and you know how to go from gaps to gold. You know what the questions are that for those things that you're trying to solve for. Mm -hmm. And it's not just an HR function. People like to put these roles into an HR function and HR is where diversity and inclusion goes to die. Organizations Mm -hmm. are not designed at least where, where human resources concern, concerned, systems self-replicate and HR thrives on, the, on systematic self-replication. It is people in, people out and human resources exist to protect really their organization or their brand from their people. And you have somebody come into my role or to do the work that I do in an organization and I'm being asked to disrupt what has been long-term patterns and practices. Mm-hmm. I'm asked to challenge an organization's foundation and that puts you at the other side sometimes of a goal with human resources. Now, when those things work together and they're partnering appropriately, then it's great when an organization doesn't feel like it has to be protected from its people. But You'll have a lot of leaders that'll hear the conversation that we're having and they'll think that it's ridiculous. And they they assume that um, this is off the mark, that, that it's wrong, that their HR is not against their people. But the simple fact that more people than not do not feel that there is a culture of psychological safety, that they can disagree, that they can think outside of the box, that they can move outside of the lane that they've been put in, that tells you a lot. That they're afraid of the organization that they work for, that they work within, whose mission they're trying to advance. How does it look that I'm trying to advance your mission, but I'm terribly afraid to misspeak, to misstep, to act in a way, even when I feel that it's the right thing to do that will hold an organization accountable to their mission, their values, and their true north, that I'm afraid to hold you accountable? That says a lot. So I think that people have to really. Uh, separate the idea of professionalism and passion and know that they're not the same thing. But there's a role for both, but also that uh, organizations have to be pushed and challenged and you have to have a a culture of psychological safety because it's all hands on deck.
1: You know, it's it's interesting, Channing, you said uh, when it comes to that passion piece, you know, I'm going to tell you, and then, you know, I'm gonna tell you something. You've inspired me. I'm gonna talk about why you've inspired me. we as we continue this conversation. But you know, Live Corporate is a you know we're a media network. We 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 try to tell it as my as my dad would say. We try to tell it like it ti is. And it's it's been incredible to me to see since the murder of George Floyd how many people have made whole new careers off of quote unquote passion and DNI.
3: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There is an explosion of, of different firms that exist today that didn't exist a month ago. There are people who, uh, you know, Joe in the mailroom has opened up a consulting firm. My teacher has started a consulting firm. A social worker has started a consulting firm. A communications executive has started a consulting firm. So many people are rushing to the space because when you have organizations, especially, you know, Fortune 100, that have said, we're going to commit $20 million. We're going to commit $50 million. We're going to commit a billion dollars. Everybody wants that money.
1: They just see the bread.
3: They do. They see the money. And they don't understand why this space has to exist. And, you know, even when I talk about the, the why this space exists, I'm sitting in my office and I always surround myself with things that are grounding for the work that I do that that talks about why it's critically important. And, you know, I look at pictures like my father's grandparents, the Mm Hillsons of Mississippi. These are people who were tenant farmers. These are people who didn't have the opportunity for education. These are people who were three generations removed from chattel slavery. These are people that lived under the yoke of Jim Crow, of colored and white, where they didn't have the luxury of self determination, of choice, of freedom, of of voice. And we live today with the legacy that they live with. And to me, the skin in the game that I have, you know, you have you have CEOs and and corporate leaders and others who think that this is a nice to have, this diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And for me, it's not a nice to have, it's a demand to have. It's a call to have. It's a promise that has been made to have. Mm -hmm. And so the trajectory when it comes to the human condition, especially as it relates to black and brown people, Dr. King talked about this check that has bounced for so many years. And that somebody's got to make good on that check. And this work holds us accountable. This work is going back and reviewing the ledger and rewriting the rules so that we can fulfill the promise that we made to people that have helped build this country and build these companies and continue to do so.
1: Well, you know, and to that end, though, like, you know, we've both been talking about the fact that it's not doing that right now. So, you know, where do you see? this space going in the next five to 10 years before 2030, where do you see it being?
3: I think that what's going to happen is, you know, if people are true to their words, this space will uh, mature. It'll professionalize in a way that passion is a nice to have. It's an important to have, but professionalism is going to be a a, a demand to have. I see this um, growing in the same way that right now, you know, people see this work as the sprinkles on a cupcake when it is not the sprinkles on the cupcake, it is the flour, the sugar, and the butter, and the cake. And in the same way that you can't pull your underrepresented populations in an organization and put them in front of this and say that it's a business imperative, you would never dream to leverage an employee resource group to hold the function of the chief financial officer. You would never dream to leverage an employee resource group or or diversity committee to have the functional responsibility of a chief operating officer, a chief Mm -hmm. medical officer, a chief administrative Mm -hmm. officer, because you understand the critical importance of those roles and their function and the skill required to do those functions. And today that's what people think that they can do. But I think that over the course of the last year, there's probably been a little bit of listening and learning and a little bit of humility happening in boardrooms across America that people see now that it's not enough to try and put employees in charge who by the way have other duties that are assigned they're 100%. doing this they're doing this off of the side of their desk, and it doesn't demonstrate a seriousness and commitment and I think that thirty years from now in the same way that you know it used to be okay to be functionally literate in this country and to be able to to do well and have an eighth grade education and and it didn't matter now we're at a place that you know it's not enough oftentimes to have a high school diploma you have to have a trade you have to have a professional education you have to have sometimes an associate or bachelor's degree because now that's the floor and i think that the floor is going to raise where it comes to this discipline. So that people will have a a good understanding and a better appreciation of uh, what it means and that uh, it's it's part of not just human resources, but you operationalize it across every business vertical in an organization.
1: So so let's let's pivot a little bit and talk about last role. So, you know, you joined Amazon for a global diversity inclusion leader. Mm -hmm. What led you to take that role?
3: I was recruited to go to Amazon I was asked because of my my talent, my unique skill set and background, if I would join their largest field organization to lead that global diversity effort. And really, I didn't need Amazon. But I thought Amazon is the center of the universe across a lot of industries. Mm -hmm. They're more than just commercial sales. They're more than just cloud services. They're more than just entertainment. Amazon touches everything, everything in our lives, not just in this country, but around, lives around the world. And I feel like it's so critically important to have people like Amazon incorporating best practices in this space into what they do, because everybody's watching them. And if Amazon can figure out how to do it and show people the path forward, then those are the breadcrumbs on the trail that others can follow. And so, you know, where goes Amazon goes everyone else. And I wanted to join Amazon to influence the space and to bring my my talent and set for for whatever people think of it. But uh, I wanted to to lend my talent and voice and skill to that space so that um, we could build something that others could uh, replicate, that we would model what other folks could do in terms of best practices to follow.
1: So, you know, between Vox and Verge and several other media platforms, you know, you've been, you have been cited on the record talking about some challenges, you know, your perspective on Amazon and as it pertains to diversity, inclusion, your own experiences. One, so when I talk about you inspired me, you know, that's why, because we don't see that a lot. We don't see black and brown folks like really speaking out a lot. And then frankly, like they typically, you know, they, they're pushed to the side, like very quickly sometimes. Talk to me about what was your motivation to speak out? Why did you speak out? And then how did you navigate past any fear or anxiety? The same things, you know, I think about, you know, even generationally, you know, Gen X folks uh, are very quick to tell millennials and Gen Z folks to keep your head down or don't say too much, you know, even even when you're exiting, don't speak out too much or whatever the case is, because, you know, it may follow. You don't want to, you know, hurt yourself, whatever the case is. Like, why did you decide to speak?
3: I don't know anything else to do, but to not speak because I am Gus and Mary Kelly's daughter, because I am Whitman and Eula Dodd's granddaughter. I am Charlie and Gladys Kelly's granddaughter. I come from a, a line of people who will tell you like a T. I. is, <laughs> but most important because of the experience there and to, to, you know, when somebody comes in in the role that I'm in, you are often, sometimes, the light that points to port. People see somebody in my role as the lifeline, the helpmate of. The circumstance where, you know, we are struggling, we are treading water, and here's somebody that, is, that represents the lifeline. She's going to come in and help change and, and, and change and challenge, right? Fix the conditions that have led us to feel like we can't breathe, we can't thrive, we can't survive. So I come in and people are eager to share their stories. Mm-hmm. And I've had leaders in the past and other organizations say to me, I'm supposed to believe that you come in on day one and people are just going to be that vulnerable and share these stories with you. And I say, yeah, everywhere I go, that happens. Mm-hmm. Even since leaving Amazon, I have heard from hundreds of people. I talk to different people every week now that share stories of heartbreak and pain and heartache. I've heard people talk about being crushed under the weight of stress and have shared you know uh, stories of, of having miscarriages behind the stress of Amazon. Mm. I've had people share with me stories of losing hair and losing sleep and having their relationships at home be challenged because of the, the, the stress and the anxiety and terror that is the toxicity of, of that place, but not just Amazon, other organizations as well, and not just tech, but to talk about this thing of fear and psychological safety and being crushed. and. The reason that I do the work that I do is to not be other people's voice, but to create space for their voices. And where they cannot bring their voices into the space, then I will share their stories. I listen and learn. And what I do is share the stories. My work is to gather qualitative and quantitative data, to hold it up to an organization and say, this is your current state. Now you have to decide what you do from here. We can build the path forward, this journey with these folks forward. Because I always say build nothing for them without them. Mm. Build nothing for them without them. What does it look like, Zach, for me to win $20 million and decide I'm going to build a home for you and your family? And I choose the size and the location and the materials and the design and i never sit and have a conversation with you to talk about what it is that you need want and desire mm. build nothing for them without them and so you work with an organization's leader with that data that is qualitative and quantitative and you build with those people who will inherit that decision making that would be part of that decision making for what that future state should be because remember the point is that you're supposed to be building it for their for their betterment
1: yeah can i challenge you with something yeah I'm looking at your background. I don't believe because you started off in, you know, I know it's education, but then then community organizing and community organizing work. I don't think that that work squares with the capitalistic and patriarchal and exploitative nature of corporate America. Mm -hmm. And so I challenge that you entering these spaces Mm -hmm. with that ethic is created fundamental discord with the white capitalist power structure. Have you thought about that? Like, not using those words, but your fundamental profile and how it is philosophically opposed to the work as corporate America often defines it?
3: And there lies the rub. So when I say that Mm -hmm. I come in and organizations have charged me you know be careful what you ask for i tell leaders (laughs) i sit down at a table and the first thing i say is are you really ready to have these conversations because be careful what you ask for because when that genie is out of the bottle you can't put the genie back in the bottle
1: Mm -hmm. once you
3: see it once you see what's behind the curtain
1: can't unsee that
3: you can't unsee it and so corporate leaders today are saying that they want what i'm what i'm selling they're saying that, for example, black and brown people have not had the opportunity that they deserved, that they've always deserved. Women are not having the opportunity they've always deserved. The LGBTQIA community is not having the opportunity they've always deserved. And they're saying that more than 400 years ago at our founding, we were built upon a foundation that was for some and not the many, for a few and not all. And they're saying, we want to challenge that social contract. And I'm saying, okay, then let's challenge that social contract. And so if that is your foundation and I'm, you're asking me to come in and challenge that foundation, mm-hmm. then let's talk about what that means. Let's talk about how an organization could or should structure itself so that you continue to be a viable organization. But how do you do that in order to meet the needs of the whole person? Because an organization's strength is not the widgets and gadgets that they produce because those are produced by people. The most valuable asset in an organization is its people. Mm -hmm. And so how can we build an organization that is able to fully leverage its people in the way that people can experience trust, value, and respect that they feel like they have skin in the game now? That they don't have a renter's mentality in an organization, but an owner's mentality. Mm -hmm. That they don't feel like they're on borrowed time and space in an organization that they're helping to build and grow. And it doesn't mean that everybody's going to be a director. Everybody isn't going to be a CEO. But it should mean that when people walk away from that place at the end of their work day, at the end of their duty station, that not only do they feel trust, value, and respect, but they feel like they have a vested interest, that they have a, an opportunity to grow, that they have an opportunity to be able to thrive, that for as much as it means to the stakeholders and as much as it means to the owner that holds the, the keys to the kingdom, right? That they feel like they have some ownership stake in that that it's worth their while to be there every day and they do it gladly. And so you can rebuild the foundation. I mean, you know, this country was built on a foundation really of lies. Mm -hmm. So how do you rebuild the foundation with all people's success and goodwill in mind?
1: You know, and I I think about, I'm going to go back to this. And I recognize you talk about legacy and family for the rationale of why you spoke up. What do you say like, to your contemporaries who would say that you being unwise or whatever word they want to use mm-hmm. for going on the record and speaking truth to power regarding Amazon, regarding your experience, regarding this industry, what would you say to that?
3: Let me take a half a step back and say it is on the strength of family, on legacy, and really the principles and values that I was raised with that I'd speak up. Mm-hmm. And that is because I can't talk to somebody else about allyship if I'm not willing to be an ally. And I've, I feel like my speaking up is my promise and commitment and my living the promise and commitment to be an ally for all people. And when I see something and I judge it to be wrong, I have to act. You know, one of the more uh, influential people in my, my life was the uh, president of Catholic Community Services of Western Washington. Uh, his name was Michael Reichert and he would say you know in accordance with catholic social teaching that you have to see judge and act that you see something happening you have to come to a conclusion and you judge that thing that you see is this right or wrong is this good or bad, or bad is this fair or unfair so you make a judgment and once you've made the judgment then you're compelled to act it's not enough that you see it, you identify it to be wrong, then what are you gonna do about that thing that's wrong? Mm-hmm. And I feel compelled to then act. And there have been many people that have reached out to me and asked, Are you okay? Are you good? You know, you even when I did the Vox piece, the the the, the folks at Vox wanted to know, Are you sure? Because nobody else will speak out. <laughs> and if nobody speaks out and says that these things are wrong, then it's easy for people to make the case that they're not wrong. Mm -hmm. It's easy to then make the case, you know, people have, have listened to me and and said, you can't listen to her. You can't believe everything that she says. This is just her side of the story. People have said that I'm speaking unfairly, that I'm misrepresenting, that it's anecdotal, but it's not anecdotal.
2: Mm.
3: And if there was a real culture of psychological safety, people would tell you what it is that they feel and they, they experience it. You know, the fact that uh, I hear from so many people, but you have to understand that in the uh, disposition of the work that I do, when I survey staffs, 100% of a workforce, these people that say that this is anecdotal, these people in, 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 across the world, across industries, across organizations that think that I don't know, I've got two decades worth of experience talking to all of the staffs in in, in many organizations. And I know the data and I know, I know Mm. how staffs feel. Mm. So I am that person, I am that chick that a CEO, a future CEO, a president, a leader, a director, a governor, whoever. You can peddle that lie to a lot of people, but somebody like me, you can't peddle the lie to, because I know the truth. I've done this a long time, and where they've only experienced their staff, I've talked to staffs across the country and across the world, in more than 40 states and across this planet. I know the truth of what people feel in these organizations. So when I talk about the culture of psychological safety, and that is the first thing you have to deal with. I say that not because of conjecture, but I say it because of experience, because I know. And so people will say, don't speak up. People will say, you know, don't burn bridges. People will say you'll never earn money. I will share that even at Amazon with some senior most leaders. I said, I'm going to do for you what other people are afraid to do. I'm going to tell you the truth because I will never be hungry and I'll never be homeless. So I'm gonna tell you the truth where other people won't. And if you are practicing performative DEI, I don't have time for it. Life is short. I don't have time to sit and entertain conversations where people aren't serious. Yeah. You, you probably heard what I heard growing up. All money ain't good money.
1: All money is not good money, Channing. Say it again.
3: All money ain't good money. And I'll tell you what I won't do, I will not sell short the lives and legacies, the souls and stories of thousands of people, of millions of people that have gone on before. I don't, and it it doesn't have to be black folks. It doesn't have to be brown folks. It could be poor folks, poor white rural people. I don't care who it is. Mm -hmm. I will not sell short those folks who have dreamt of brighter days.
1: It's something about, it's the legacy and the integrity for me. i really, I think about this moment and I think about the fact that there will be more, you know, exposés coming on different companies. And I do believe that, you know, first of all, you weren't the first, of course. No. And you won't be the last. There's going to be more of these conversations. As we talk about this space and we talk about the future of this, of DEI's. we talk about really the future of work for marginalized people, you know, what advice would you, would you give to executives who, if they came to you and said, look, I really want to make an impact, I really want to create systemic change. What would be the three starting pillars you'd give them?
3: The same one that I give everybody. Number one, commitment without resources is a a dream waiting to be unfulfilled. Mm. You have to staff appropriately and resource appropriately. So, that you can demonstrate that you're willing to put forward a professional effort and not simply passion. The second thing that I'd say is that leaders have to listen and learn, they have to get out of their own way. Because to identify the current future state means that you have to hear the stories of clients, you have to hear the stories of community, you have to hear the stories of employees. You don't build a solution without collaborating with and, and, and considering those folks that are the end user. Build nothing for them without them. Listen and learn. Use qualitative and quantitative data and let that thing help you identify the current state and be, be your true northern guide. And then finally, you know, I've pushed Amazon. I push other people on data and transparency because transparency invites accountability. You have to make sure that everybody has a role on the organization's journey and whatever that looks like to go forward. Because if you don't hold folks accountable for their contributions to the success toward goals, if it's one person that's responsible, people will say, we hired a diversity officer. We've hired a social impact VP. We've hired a, a coordinator. And that's the person whose job it is. In an organization that is 50 people, five people, 500, 5,000 or or 500,000, it doesn't matter. But if you point down the the, the end of the hall and say, but it's not my job to create an organizational culture that allows for people to feel like they're included, they belong, that they can thrive. It's not my job to ensure that we promote workplace uh, safety and psychological safety. It's not my job to ensure that we're diverse. It's that person's job. It's that team's job. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the responsibility of everybody. It's not one department. It's not one leader. It's not one person. It is everybody in the organization's job to ensure that these goals are a success and everybody has to be held accountable.
1: Can I ask you a question about that? Yeah. At any one point in time did you ever see like a comprehensive data like dump or dashboard of Amazon's DEI challenges or information like did, was that shared with you did you ever get that Oh yeah The reason I ask is because I've worked with organizations and I've I've talked to institutions who have offices of diversity and inclusion but they've never seen a comprehensive data set
3: Oh yeah and there are people right now that are responsible for doing DEI work I've been in organizations as the head of and had to fight to, to access the data
2: mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. and have been told it was behind attorney-client privilege and I said, but I'm the client. <laughs> <laughs> so organizations are afraid to share the data because they're afraid to share their warts, but you will never fix something that you don't acknowledge to be a problem people can forgive that there's room to grow but what they don't forgive is that you don't recognize it don't acknowledge and don't share that you're trying to do anything to fix it and when dei is seen as the sprinkles on the cupcake whenever a cut has to be made whenever values or principles or work has to be sacrificed people will throw that on at, on the altar and put it across the sword and you get rid of that first
1: Always. It's always, it's always cut first. I remember prior to the murder of George Floyd, there were people I would be talking to who would reach out to live in corporate or vice versa and ask to work with us. We'd be talking about, and they'd be like, hey, you know, we don't really have a budget or, well, actually, you know, our department's shrinking. And then, you know, you see a black man murdered in slow motion on Twitter. And all of a sudden, like you said earlier, multimillion dollar commitments just come falling out the sky.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. And then, all of a sudden, checks rain down upon social justice like organizations. <laughs> and for a lot of those organizations, they throw the money at it, but don't even turn around and look back to see the impact on the give. Right. And don't care. Right. How do you say that you care when you don't even go back to say we've given a hundred thousand, we've given a million, we've given ten million? And you don't even turn around and look back to say, and what has been the fruits of the seeds that we planted with the gift?" They don't care. That was just the entry fee that they pay in the race to Wokeville.
1: Mm -hmm. I've just been honored so much. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on Living Corporate, Shannon. Uh, We consider you a friend of the show. Uh, We look forward to having you back. Thank you. And um, we'll talk soon.
3: Thank you. I'm always appreciative to be able to to talk about this issue. And, you know, it's bigger than Amazon. It's bigger than corporate America. It's bigger than tech. This is about how every system, how every organization, and really every leader creates space to have these conversations to talk about how we uh, grow and improve communities, one organization at a time, and that we can all collectively move in that same direction. and. You know, I think that there are many leaders that want to move in the right direction, in the same direction. They have to sometimes just get out of their own way and stop worrying about how people who will be offended by this work will respond. Because to me, people that are offended by these conversations are the problem. And I don't think that we should slow down these conversations because people who do not fully support social justice, inclusion, and equity. I don't think that we should offer deference to those people and compromise our, what I believe, our shared values to move this nation forward, to move the world forward, to move humanity forward. I think that we have to stop offering deference and giving life to these places, these corners uh, in the community where they would seek to end these conversations about the growth and development and benefit of of people.
1: Hmm. I'm going to let it ride. I'm going to let it breathe. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Living Corporate is brought to you by the Leadership Range, a podcast within the Living Corporate Network hosted by globally certified and Fortune 500 executive coach and leadership development expert Neil Edwards. The Leadership Range is focused on having real, raw, soulful, and accountable conversations about inclusive leadership, allyship, professional development. Every week is a new episode with new learning and new actions to take on to grow inclusively. Make sure you check out the leadership range everywhere you listen to podcasts. And we're back. Yo, I want to thank Shannon Kelly Ray. Shout out to her. Make sure you go and you peep the links in the show notes, learn more about what she has going on, learn more about her company, learn more about her background, the work that she does and the expertise that she carries and the wisdom that she carries. Beautiful conversation, encouraging. But tell you, Look, it's going to take us as a people individually and collectively um, sacrifice for us to get the type of justice and truth and accountability that we're looking for. Okay? It's not enough to write a couple things on LinkedIn. It's not enough to, you know, pass anonymous comments. We have to be willing to stand up and make our voices heard. And I recognize that There's a certain amount of survival that each of us owe to ourselves, right? To take care of ourselves. I would ask you to just challenge yourself on where you could be bolder, right? We're not going to rise. We're not going to get any freer if we continue just to look out for ourselves. We have to be honest. We have to be honest. We have to be honest with ourselves and we have to be honest with those speaking truth to power so that we can get the liberation that we're looking for. And I recognize everyone doesn't want to be free. Right. So that's something I continue to have to, like, grow and like accept that everyone doesn't want this like equitable place. Some folks just want to switch places. They want to switch places or they just want to join the power majority, the oppressor class for me, where my heart and my passion is, is in truly dismantling systems that create harm for us. Right. And so I recognize that media I truly believe that digital media is the future of empowering the voiceless. And I think we've seen that already through Twitter, through other social media channels. We've seen that. I believe that podcasting, I believe that web shows, blogs, that's going to continue to be a medium by which people can speak truth to power. And that's why you see us with Liberated Love Notes, the leadership range. See it to be it. Tap in with Tristan. This show, Real Talk Tuesdays, on the Living Corporate flagship pod, the group chat, the break room, the access point, our white papers. Like that's where we're coming from. Like that's the idea. Is we're trying to mobilize and galvanize marginalized folks at the grassroots level to speak truth about the reality of our experiences. The most powerful thing we will always have is our voice. That position that you're clamoring for. That senior level executive position that you've been working seven, eight years to get that you've, you know, taken a ton of abuse to get. That's not going to give you liberation. That's not going to give you the power that you think. Right. The most powerful thing you have is your voice. And look, if you believe that, if you vibe with that, if you're down with like what Living Corporate is doing, I'm going to ask you all to support us. Give us five stars on Apple podcast. Check out living-corporate.com. Subscribe. Sign up for the newsletter. You know what I'm saying? Check out our content and then share it with a friend. All right. Until next time, this has been Zach. Make sure y'all check us out. Next week starts our Pfizer campaign. Excited for y'all to check it out. And uh, we'll catch y'all later. Peace.